You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around with me. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I volunteered at the LA Food Bank this week, which was great. It's been a while since I've been able to do an honest-to-goodness volunteer thing, so that was awesome. Also, I might just be in my head, but my voice is still recovering a little bit from the birthday revelries I attended this weekend and an office party this week, so that's why if I sound a little off, that's why. I'm sure I'm the only one who noticed it, but, you know, there you go. No movies this week, so let's just get right into it. This week, the history of the film studio founded by three movie stars and a director, United Artists. We'll cover the stories behind its founding, the early years, its golden age, all the way up to the moment it unceremoniously ceased to exist. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. D.W. Griffith wanted success. Since his film The Birth of a Nation's release in 1915, the director had been struggling to find the same commercial success the controversial film had given him. Mary Pickford wanted to choose her own roles. No matter what studio she went to, they always wanted the 26-year-old petite actress to play young girls. Charlie Chaplin wanted artistic freedom. He was one of the biggest movie stars slash filmmakers of the day, and yet his studio first national pictures would not increase the budgets for his films. Douglas Fairbanks wanted control. He was tired of studios telling him what parts to play and his image being used to promote lesser pictures. These four titans of the motion picture industry, despite having been major contributors to the rise of said industry, with Chaplin, Fairbanks, and Pickford being major players and building up the idea of a movie star in the first place, were just altogether fed up. They were tired of being told what to do and how to do it and decided to do something about it. In front of the press on February 5th, 1919, the four would publicly sign a deal joining forces to create United Artists. When head of Metro Pictures Richard A. Rowland got wind of this, he reportedly said, The inmates have taken over the asylum. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Back in January 1910, Mary Pickford traveled from New York to Los Angeles, a part of a team of 30 actors and crew that had been handpicked by D.W. Griffith, one of the company's top directors. They were in search of the nearly ceaseless California sunshine. 
There, Griffith would produce a 20-minute film every two days. Motion pictures were still a novelty at this point, and film workers and performers were seen as more akin to factory workers than artisans, hence this, you know, super speed. That would, of course, change with filmmakers like Griffith, who would experiment with camera angles, framing, mise en scene, and editing, eventually turning the gimmick into an art form. Griffith's 1910 short in Old California would be the first film ever shot in California, Ventura to be exact. The short was about a Spanish woman, played of course by the Canadian-Caucasian Mary Pickford, during the Mexican era of California. It's available on YouTube, which is where I saw it, as I'm sure Griffith would have wanted it if he knew what YouTube or a computer was. It was during this trip that D.W. Griffith quote-unquote discovered the small village of Hollywood. Griffith, inspired by early Italian filmmakers, wanted to make longer films, something Biograph was dead set against. So, he left the company in 1913, and then the following year began production on the film that would cement his status as a pillar of the film community, despite it being a highly controversial, historically revisionist, and racist film, which of course was the birth of a nation. In spite of all the controversy, the film catapulted the art of the motion picture from mere novelty to legitimate works of art. Mary Pickford started on Broadway, eventually transitioning to film. For more about Pickford's life, see my March 2022 episode about her. Griffith would hire Pickford for Biograph for $10 a day, despite a disastrous first audition. Within a few years, Mary would be making $10,000 a week, which is about $300,000 in today money. Eventually, Pickford would become the first woman to make a million dollars a year. Pickford would also be one of the major performers to develop acting styles better suited for film versus the theater. Coupled with Griffith's experimentation with close-ups, Mary could use her eyes in a way that actors that preceded her never could. With just one close-up, Pickford could make simultaneous eye contact with every patron in the movie house, something that was impossible when performing on the stage. Pickford would also become the first actor to receive top billing, meaning her name appeared above the film's title, in the famous player Lasky, later Paramount Pictures film, Tess of the Storm Country in 1914. Within weeks, the name Mary Pickford was a household name at last tied to her already established household face. A face that could be used by studios to bargain with theaters when it came to block booking. Mary hated this because she felt it allowed mediocre filmmaking and also impacted her wallet. Despite her small stature and baby face, Mary Pickford was an astute businesswoman. She wanted to get her fair share of the money if it was her work these other films were profiting off of. British-born Charlie Chaplin had begun like many comedians did back then, on the vaudeville circuit, though in England. In December 1913, King of Comedy Max Sennett called the actor to the American West Coast, with Chaplin joining his famous Keystone Film Company roster. Chaplin's second film with the company, Kids Auto Race, would see the debut of his tramp character, which Chaplin came up with himself and, of course, now is one of the iconic images of cinema. As his reputation grew, Chaplin eventually started directing and writing the shorts he starred in. Chaplin was at Keystone for only about a year, but wanted to make more sophisticated comedy, which Max Sennett was not into. So Chaplin ended up at First National Pictures. There, his films would continue to become more and more ambitious, with his films eventually taking two to three weeks to make versus the industry standard of that time being two to three days. 
After a studio messed with one of his films to make it longer, Chaplin ensured that a clause would be placed in his contract, preventing this from ever happening again, making Charlie Chaplin the first director to ever secure the right to final cut. Chaplin became an international icon not long after, opening his own studio on La Brea in Hollywood. If you are familiar with the area, it is now home to the Jim Henson studio, and that's why Kermit's like on the t- on the roof uh, dressed as Charlie Chaplin. It's them paying homage to the fact that this was once Chaplin Studios. Around this time, like mid to late 1910s, Chaplin met lifelong friend Douglas Fairbanks at a swanky Hollywood party pool table. By the time Douglas Fairbanks had come on the motion picture scene, Mary Pickford and D.W. Griffith were already major names. Fairbanks would find his own niche in the industry, making a name for himself in the motion pictures as a swashbuckler whom did all manner of intricate stunts, which were made to look spontaneous, but in reality were actually highly choreographed so nobody got super injured. He had started his career acting in theater, stopping briefly to work in his father-in-law's soap business before returning to Broadway. Fairbanks had done some film work at this time, even working with D.W. Griffith, whom hadn't known what to do with him. Fairbanks would eventually head west, ultimately finding success as a romantic lead, so much so that he'd managed to form his own film company in 1916. Soon, Fairbanks's resume grew to include producer and even writer, though for the latter, he would use his middle name for the credits, which was Elton Thomas. Fairbanks had control of the production of his films, but had next to none as to how they were distributed. That distinction lied with Paramount Pictures, whom he'd signed a deal with. And Fairbanks didn't like how his films were being sold, which was, like Mary's, typically in a package of Paramount's not-so-great films, which frustrated the actor. Their bad movies were profiting off of his hard work. By the end of the decade, Hollywood had gone from a tiny village to a booming vista, inundated with motion picture professionals, though it was still a pretty small town. In a lot of ways, it still is. Vertical integration was becoming a standard in the bigger studios as many of them merged together, and as a result, talent would slowly but surely lose what little wiggle room they'd had artistically. Douglas Fairbanks had met Mary Pickford at a party in 1916, almost the moment he arrived in Hollywood. The two began an affair, both were still married to other people, which went on for years. Chaplin, Pickford, and Fairbanks would sell war bonds together during World War I, allowing the two to be together without bringing too much attention to their affair. The two would eventually divorce their partners and married in March of 1920, 13 months after the founding of United Artists. Meanwhile, D.W. Griffith was, as I said earlier, having a hard time securing a hit the level of Birth of a Nation. He shot several epics, including Intolerance, which was a financial disaster. He even shot actual war footage for his 1918 film Hearts of the World while touring in England and France during World War I. Despite his financial struggles, Chaplin, Pickford, and Fairbanks had a lot of respect for the director and the contributions he had made to their industry, and Pickford convinced the other two to add Griffith to the fold of their upcoming enterprise. By 1918, all four of these individuals had their own production companies. What they didn't have was a way to get the films distributed. As long as that was a hurdle, they could never truly be creatively free. There was also a rumor that a series of film production companies, turns out it was First National and Paramount, were planning to merge together, creating a monopoly on film distribution, therefore giving them the power to reduce artists' salaries and the cost of film production. Less studios also meant less places to bid on artists and their works. 
So, Pickford, Fairbanks, and Chaplin hatched a plan with the help of Chaplin's brother, Sidney. The group decided to hire two PIs to investigate these rumors and spy on a group of production heads at the Alexandria Hotel in January 1919, where this alleged deal was rumored to be going down. One of the PIs was an attractive woman, whom lured a horny producer back to her room, where, over drinks, he bragged about the industry plans he was privy to. The man more or less confirmed their suspicions. Days later, Fairbanks Chaplin, Pickford Griffith, and actor William S. Hart banded together and walked into the Alexandria Hotel. Not long after, they announced their plans to create a company of united artists to protect their visions and those of other members of the industry. Hart clearly wasn't completely committed to this idea, as not long after, he was offered a generous contract from Paramount to leave the deal, but the other four continued on, and United Artists was founded on February 5th, 1919. That first National Paramount merger never happened, but scores of others would. In fact, First National would ultimately fold into Warner Brothers in 1929. Also, it bears to mention that the four were not the first performers to attempt to make something like this, but they would be the first to succeed and therefore are the first to be remembered. Just FYI. The original terms of the Quads deal called for each star to produce five pictures a year and block booking would never be allowed to happen. By the time the company was fully operational in 1921, however, feature films were becoming more expensive and more polished and running times were averaging about 90 minutes or about eight reels. So yeah. Even without sound, that just wasn't going to happen. Also, Griffith and Chaplin were still tied up in other contracts when the company was formed, which ate up a lot of their time. Even when they bumped the requirement down to one film a year for United Artists, most of them couldn't even hit that quota. Chaplin made movies notoriously slowly, while Fairbanks liked his costume dramas, which also took ages to produce. Despite this, United Artists, or UA as I'll call it throughout this episode as well, began making and distributing films the same year it was founded. UA's first production, His Majesty the American, was written by and starred Fairbanks to great success when it released in September 1919. But the first released UA film was from Griffith, though they did not produce it, as he bought his most recent unreleased film Broken Blossoms from Paramount so he could release it under United Artists. It cost him three times the production's budget to obtain, but it made three times the film's entire cost when it released in May 1919, making the film Griffith's first real hit since Birth of a Nation four years earlier. It wouldn't be enough to keep Griffith in the partnership ultimately, and he ended up bowing out in 1924 after having produced or directed nine films for UA. Griffith would see a few of his films after this distributed by his former company, but this former titan of the industry would die penniless and mostly forgotten by the audiences he'd once entertained, for better or worse in some cases, in 1948. The Directors Guild of America had to pay for the director to have a headstone on his final resting place. Since funding for movies was limited and becoming more expensive by the day, without selling stock to the public like other studios had, all United had for financing in these early days was weekly payments from theater owners for their upcoming movies. So basically they were holding on using pre-sales. As a result of this, production was slow and the company distributed just an average of about eight films a year in its first five years, which was not enough to keep them out of financial woe a state the studio never really fully got out of until about the 1950s. 
In fact, six of the 10 years of the 1920s saw the studio losing money. And it very likely didn't help that they were only releasing about 30% what the larger studios were in this time. UA's unofficial home became the newly acquired Pickford Fairbanks Studios in the heart of Hollywood. The land is still home to a backlot today, now simply known as The Lot. This location is off-sited places as being the UA Lot, including The Lot's own website. But despite being renamed the United Artists Lot in 1927, it was never officially a part of the UA company. Therefore, there wasn't an official UA backlot. It was owned by Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks privately. This fact is what, in part, kept the studio from becoming one of the big five. They distributed more films than they produced and had no officially dedicated place to shoot films anyway. So things were happening, but definitely not smoothly. The four owners at no time ever got along at all, despite them all having been friends or friendly before the company was founded. Fairbanks would screw around in meetings, often grabbing people's legs from under the table, infuriating Griffith before he'd left. And this didn't really help with Griffith's like image of Fairbanks or opinion of Fairbanks because he thought the actor was a talentless hack. Ironically, this was more or less Griffith's opinion of Pickford as well, that she was a talentless hack, unless she was conveniently being directed by him. Chaplin was reportedly obsessed with money and was making most of his higher grossing films, save the gold rush, at other studios at this time, aka their competitors were making more money on Chaplin than Chaplin was bringing to his own company, which kind of pissed off his UA partners. While one of Mary's desires into going to business for herself was to move away from the little girl roles that had made her a superstar, she knew she needed to bring in revenue into United Artists, and there was one tried and true way that she knew how to do that. So in 1920, she made Pollyanna, an almost guaranteed hit for the studio, which it was. The film made $1 million, securing United Artists in the pantheon of studios. Naturally, since the now three artists couldn't keep up with their own quotas, other talent was brought in to make films to fill up the gaps. This included Roy William Neal, who made 1921's The Iron Trail for the studio, and Chester Franklin, who made 1925's Wild Justice. More talent was on the way, as after Griffith's departure from the company, producer Joseph Schenck was hired as president of UA to prevent UA from further financial ruin. With him came his wife, actress Norma Talmadge, sister-in-law Constance, and brother-in-law Buster Keaton, quite the family. Buster Keaton soon made arguably his most famous film, The General, from 1926 for United Artists. Additional contracts were signed with independent producers, including Samuel Goldwyn post-MGM and Howard Hughes pre-RKO. Rudolph Valentino would also make the sequel to his most famous film, The Sheik, for United Artists, which was 1926's The Son of the Sheik. The mid to late 1920s would be United Artists' strongest streak while the old guard was still in charge, with many of the United Artists making their historically best-known films. For Pickford, this was the remake of Tess of the Storm Country, there was Little Annie Rooney, and there was Coquette, the latter of which she won her first and only competitive Oscar for. For Chaplin, there was The Gold Rush and The Circus. Like I said, he did his bigger ones somewhere else. And for Fairbanks, there was Robin Hood, The Thief of Baghdad, and Don Q, son of Zorro. Shank's other big contribution for United Artists was securing international distribution for the studio so they would be able to compete with the bigger studios. In order to be able to fight 
those big studios, which they'd founded United Artists to avoid, they themselves would ultimately have to become a big boy as well. They began operations internationally, first in Canada and then in Mexico. In 1926, United Artists began acquiring and building theaters, with the first opening in downtown L.A. on December 26, 1927, showing Pickford's latest vehicle, My Best Girl, which had come out a few months earlier. By the end of the 1930s, United Artists had locations in 40 countries. By the by, Chaplin had been fully against the studio acquiring theaters and therefore had refused to fund this particular project. Also, the downtown location is still a theater to this day. I actually went to it for that Quentin Tarantino thing a couple weeks ago, and it is gorgeous. I don't know how, like, it might just be my ADHD talking, but, like, it's so intricate on the inside. I wish I could have taken pictures there online, but uh, Tarantino makes you put your phone in a bag so you can't take pictures and record it, and you just have to actually, like, you know, actively pay attention. But, like, it's so intricate in there. Like, I don't know how anybody watched a movie when you could just look at all the architecture inside it. It's just it's 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 gorgeous. Like, I yeah, I definitely I've definitely thrive more in the, you know, the the, the curtains and then nothing else. <laughs> like even when I go to El Capitan, I'm getting on a tangent, which I try not to do. But even like when I go to El Capitan in um in Hollywood, which is where the Disney movie show because Disney owns it. Even if I'm fully invested in the movie, I keep going, oh, shiny thing. Oh, look at that. Even though I've been there a bunch of times. But yeah, I don't know how movie palaces were ever like intricate and people actually like watch the movie. Anyway, sorry. Just it's been bothering me. It bothers me. It like sticks in my head every time I go into one of these old movie palaces. Like, how did anyone ever focus? Anyway, here we go. In 1933, Shank organized a new company with Daryl Zanuck called 20th Century Pictures, which in its early years made four pictures a year, making up half of UA's yearly releases. When he was denied an ownership share of UA in 1935, Shank resigned and set up the merger that would lead to 20th Century Fox. Independent producers continued to distribute the United Artists into the 1930s, including Samuel Goldwyn, Walt Disney, UA released his Silly Symphony shorts from 32 to 37, Hal Roach, and David O. Selznick. United Artists actually almost distributed Gone with the Wind for Selznick, but in the end, the producer went with MGM because he wanted Clark Gable as the lead, and that's where the actor was under contract. As the years passed and the dynamics of the business changed, however, these quote-unquote producing parts partners would, you know, ebb and flow and go to other studios. 1933 would see Mary Pickford's retirement from acting after making four talkies. Pushing 40, the actress had long since aged out of the little girl roles, and despite trying to push beyond that, audiences could only ever see her as that baby-faced little girl. Every time she tried to do something else, it failed spectacularly. Talkies were bringing in new talent as well, and Mary's star was fading, so she just decided to stay behind the camera going forward. Mary became the executive head of the studio in 1935 after Shank's departure, making her the first female studio head, but she was not a natural at this particular position. In fact, in 1937, the studio lost the distribution to Silly Symphonies to RKO, which was a huge ding to their bottom line. Pickford and Fairbanks divorced in 1936, and three years later, Douglas Fairbanks died of a heart attack. Fairbanks had long since lost interest in the film industry by this point, having acted in his last picture five years prior. 1930s highlights for UA included Chaplin's City Lights from 31, D.W. Griffith's final film, 1931's The Struggle, 32's Scarface, 33's The Private Life of Henry VIII, 
36's Modern Times, The First A Star Is Born in 1937, and 1939's Stagecoach, which I did not realize was UA. In the late 1930s, UA finally turned a profit with Samuel Goldwyn providing most of the output for distribution, including Dead End from 1937 and Wuthering Heights from 39. Goldwyn had his offices on the lot and eventually owned all of the buildings on the UA lot. But Mary owned the land that Goldwyn's buildings were on, and the two fought about every minute detail, including the color the buildings should be painted that Goldwyn builds. For years, because of this fight, they would remain unpainted, which is just some petty, petty, so petty. Goldwyn, it should be mentioned, hated working with Mary. And before Fairbanks' death, he would refer to Fairbanks and Chaplin as, quote, parasites drinking my blood because they still owned their original shares in the company. And Gold, so Goldwyn was basically just churning out things for them to make money off of. And Chaplin and Fairbanks weren't involved that much in UA at this point. Goldwyn eventually sued United Artists several times for disputed compensation after they sued him for making too many movies outside of their agreements. It escalated when Goldwyn renamed United Artists Studios Samuel Goldwyn Studios without Pickford's consent. She owned half the property, and the two would go to court over that as well. In 1955, the studio was put up for auction, and Goldwyn outbid Pickford for full control. So yeah, that ended that relationship. (laughs) Well, the 1940s started out strong with Chaplin's The Great Dictator. The decade was one of decline for the studio because Goldwyn had left and he was a big meal ticket. And everything else they kind of put out was critically panned and made by less tried and true independent producers. And of course, there was the ever declining cinema attendance as people moved to the suburbs and television became more popular. That did not help things. There's only like, I I went through, I I ran down the list, and there's only like a handful of UA films from this time that are, I would say, commonly known. There's 1944 Since You Went Away, which was nominated for Best Picture, as was 1945's Spellbound, which was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And because I like to do these in threes, there was also 1946's Henry V. Everything else is kind of just static, unfortunately. If one of your favorites was not one of those, I'm, I'm sorry, but you know. The truth, the truth sucks sometimes. In 1941, Pickford, Chaplin, Disney, Orson Welles, Goldwyn, Selznick, and several others, many of whom were or had been members of United Artists, formed the Society of Independent Motion Picture Producers, or SIMP, to fight the hold the major film studios had over the filmmaking and distribution pipeline. To SIMP, this meant MGM, Columbia, Paramount, Universal, RKO, 20th Century Fox, and Warner Brothers. Technically, UA was one of these as well, but I guess since their whole shtick was to be a haven for artists to express themselves freely, and maybe they had a touch of an irony deficiency, they magically weren't a part of this problem. Why would they make a, a an organization if they thought they were part of the problem? Well, the U.S. government disagreed with the assessment that um, it was everybody but them that was the problem and cited the seven aforementioned studios and United Artists as part of the reason why the studios and theaters were broken up seven years later in 1948. Back at UA, as the struggles continued, Pickford and Chaplin hired Paul V. McNutt in 1950, who was a former governor of Indiana, and placed him as chairman of United Artists. Frank L. McNamee was made president. Shockingly, a governor was not the answer to the problems and did not have the skill to fix UA's financial problems, so the pair were replaced only after a few months. On February 15th, 1951, lawyers turned producers Arthur B. Krim 
and Robert Benjamin, as well as their partner Maddie Fox, approached Pickford and Chaplin with a proposition. Let them take over United Artists for 10 years. If UA was profitable in one of the next three years, they would have the option to acquire half of the company by the end of the 10 years and ultimately take full control from the aging stars. By this point, Mary was pushing 60 and Chaplin was in his early 60s as well and unbeknownst to him was about to be banished from the U.S. after his political beliefs angered the wrong political muckety-muck. His popularity had also faded, though he was still continuing to make pictures. Chaplin and Pickford agreed to the proposition. Mary stepped down as executive head once and for all, and the era of Krim and Benjamin began, arguably the studio's most successful period. In taking over UA, Krim and Benjamin created the first studio without an actual studio, even though they'd never had an actual studio. There's a lot of technicalities with United Artists. It's what happens when you have more money than sense and you just throw things everywhere. It it may have it may have done better if things were a little bit more unified, if the United Artists had actually fully united everything, but you know, they compartmentalized, and I think that was ultimately one of the problems. <laughs> United Artists leased space at the now renamed Samuel Goldwyn Studios, primarily acting as bankers. Krim and Benjamin would offer money to independent producers to make films that UA would ultimately distribute. The two would have very little say in the creative process, and this autonomy was incredibly appealing to independent producers and talent for obvious reasons. Doing this meant that at no level did UA have to deal with the overhead, the maintenance, or the expensive production staff as other studios. That was everybody else's problem. They'd just be like, take some money and run, take some money and run, take some money and run. Just just bring us back up, just bring us back a movie, just bring back a good movie. Krim and Benjamin would turn United Artists into a juggernaut with this method over the next several years. The first major thing the duo did, outside of making movies, was buy all of the pre-1948 Warner Brothers films to form the United Artists Classics Division, which made the studio a ton of money, as they then sold them to television networks to air, as well as showed the films in revival theaters. Among their first major produced films were 1951's The African Queen and High Noon, earning the studio a profit of $313,000 that year, compared to a loss of $871,000 in 1950. Soon, the actors recently freed from their oppressive studio contracts would flock to UA, hoping for a chance to make a film for the studio. This included John Wayne, Gregory Peck, Frank Sinatra, Bob Hope, Kirk Douglas, and many others. With the instability in the film industry only getting worse, despite all of these positive things I just said, the business of making films was still considered pretty risky. In 1955, movie attendance reached its lowest level since 1923. Chaplin sold his 25% share of UA during this crisis to Krim and Benjamin for $1.1 million, and a year later, Pickford followed suit, selling her share for $3 million. Charlie Chaplin died in his sleep from a stroke in 1977, and Mary Pickford passed away in 1979 from a cerebral hemorrhage. In the late 1950s, United Artists produced two modest films that became financial and critical successes for the company. This was Marty, which won the Best Picture Oscar in 1955, and Twelve Angry Men, which released two years later in 1957. Before long, as the new leaders of UA had not shied away from television one iota, Twelve Angry Men was playing on TV somewhere in the world nearly 24-7, and this went on for years. This one movie was basically like 
all of Law and Order on television today. Just flip a channel, chances are you're going to find 12 Angry Men. Like, flip a channel today, you're going to find one of the Law and Orders. By 1958, UA was making annual profits of $3 million a year. The company went public in 1957, leaving the company vulnerable for a corporate takeover. The 60s was a decade of acquisitions and expansion, which included a record company and starting production and television. In 1966, United Artists was the largest film distributor in the world. Throughout the 60s, mainstream studios were falling into decline and some were being acquired by large companies or even diversified. UA, however, prospered, winning scores of Oscars, including five for Best Picture. This included The Apartment, West Side Story, Tom Jones, In the Heat of the Night, and the first and only X-rated film to win Best Picture, Midnight Cowboy. In 1964, UA introduced the States to the Beatles by releasing A Hard Day's Night and Help the following year. UA also assisted in launching the Pink Panther and James Bond franchises, amongst just many, 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 many other films. This was their most fruitful era. Ten years after going public in 1967, United Artists was acquired by Transamerica, which oversaw the latter of the two 1960s Best Picture wins for the studio. David and Arnold Picker would briefly replace Krim and Benjamin (laughs) until in 1970 when UA lost $35 million in one single year. Unsurprisingly, the Pickers were pushed aside for the return of Krim and Benjamin. 1970s highlights included Fiddler on the Roof and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the latter of which would be the second film in cinematic history to take home the Big Five Oscars. UA followed with the next two Best Picture winners for good measure, which were Rocky and Annie, making UA the first, and I'm pretty sure only, studio to win Best Picture three years in a row. This also made them the studio with the most Best Picture winners with 11. However, parent company Transamerica, which was a very conservative company, was not super stoked on UA's more risque releases such as Midnight Cowboy and Last Tango in Paris, which were both rated X. Transamerica was like so against these that all mention of them was removed from the marketing materials as a result. Krim tried to convince Transamerica to just spin off United Artists, but he and Transamerica's chairman could never come to an agreement. In 1978, following a dispute with said head John R. Beckett over overhead expenses, UA's top executives, including Chairman Krim, President Eric Plesko, Benjamin, and other key players just walked out. Within days, they announced the formation of Orion Pictures with backing from Warner Brothers. The departures concerned several Hollywood figures enough that they took out an ad in a trade paper warning Transamerica that it had made a fatal error in letting all of those power players leave the studio. And they were right, though not right away. Transamerica inserted Andy Albeck, who'd been running the broadcast division, as UA's new president. Albeck was put there partially in thanks due to his ability to control costs, and also he had a positive relationship with the persnickety Transamerica executives. But Albeck was not prepared for this level of leadership and responsibility. United had its most successful year with four hits in 1979, Rocky II, Moonraker, Manhattan, and The Black Stallion. And you're thinking, oh no, Albeck did it. No, no, no. All of those four films had been greenlit by the previous studio leadership, so Krim and Benjamin. This was just, they were gone, but that this was still their films. 
the first thing the new leadership did all by themselves was the greenlighting of Heaven's Gate. Directed by Michael Cimino, the film famously overran its shooting schedule, its budget. It ended up costing $44 million, which was $36.5 million over the original budget. The short version of what went down was the fact that Cimino, whom had begun his career doing commercials, was ill-equipped for the timeline needed for completing a motion picture in a timely manner. Ironic, since he just won an Oscar for making The Deer Hunter. Chimino made the actors do intensive training, including roller skating. He had a producer on location who didn't rein him in because they were boning. And by the end of the first week of shooting, Chimino had spent $900,000 on just 90 seconds of usable film. United Artists tried several times to get things under control to little to no avail. A lunatic had at last taken over the asylum. The press the film got throughout its production was horrendous. So in many ways, this film never had a chance. Like there was even like a member of the press who um, disguised himself as an extra and did like like covert reporting on the production of the movie, which really, really hurt everything. So by the time it was released, any like even if it was the best film ever made, Heaven's Gate never stood a chance. The movie got pulled from theaters a week after its release in November 1980 because it was super long. The film was re-edited and then re-released in April 1981. Altogether, the film made only $12 million, not even kind of close to breaking even, and started the modern trend of a film's success being predicated on its opening weekend numbers alone. For more on the shooting of this movie and what happened, there's my Hell Shoot episode from July 10th, 2022, in which I go over what happened in detail. The Heaven's Gate fallout was swift. Albeck resigned. United Artists recorded a major loss for the year, almost entirely due to the box office failure of Heaven's Gate. Unsurprisingly, Transamerica decided to exit the filmmaking business and put United Artists on the market. Kirk Krikorian's Transcendent Group purchased the company in 1981. If you recognize the name, it's because Krikorian liked to play hot potato with MGM at this time. In acquiring UA, Krikorian merged the company into a new corporate entity, MGM UA Entertainment Company. After that, Krikorian sold and bought all or parts of this entity at least four separate times. The final sale for $4.8 billion was to Sony in 2004, after which MGM and United Artists ceased to function as autonomous production entities. As MGM slash UA in the 80s, the most notable films to come out of this were probably like War Games and Octopussy, which wasn't good enough for Krikorian. He restructured in 1985, which led to independent MGM and UA production units, though it was all overseen by like one single group of studio leaders. Some analysts thought that one of the studios, most likely United Artists, would end up being sold off to fund the other stock buyback to take MGM private again. However, soon afterwards, Aladlad Jr. took charge of both, so now they were back as one again. MGM UA was then purchased by Ted Turner, mostly for MGM's backlog of films. Turner kept MGM, but sold UA back to Krikorian. As a result of this transaction, in 1989, the original United Artists ceased to exist. Krikorian, for all intents and purposes, created an entirely new company implementing the inherited assets. Thus, the present-day United Artists is not a legal successor to the studio founded by D.W. Griffith, Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, and Douglas Fairbanks, though it does share similar assets and, of course, bears the same name. 
While the brand has been revamped a few times over the years, notably by Tom Cruise, who bought it in the mid-2000s to be more of like, he kind of wanted to do like a United Artist 2.0. But he released two films under that, including Valkyrie, and that was pretty much it. And it's been revamped as an art house studio in the last few years. But United Artists, as it was in the golden age, has not existed since 1989. Four artists came together to make the art that they wanted. And for about 70 years, that's exactly what happened at United Artists. While the studio would ultimately be destroyed by an unforeseen foe, corporate America, their films will live on, hopefully, forever. What's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? My name is Pussy Galore. I must be dreaming. Live twice, Mr. Bond. I want you to know that I could never have been happy with anyone in the world but you. I love you. I'll be with you. Let's play something else. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I am finalizing next year's programming in the next couple of weeks, so if there's anything that you might like to learn about, let me know and I'll see what I can do. I'm also relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. There's also buy me a coffee. I went full LA bougie the, today and got some stuff from Le, Le Pen quoted in. I don't know. I used When I was a PA, I used to have to get fancy toast from there all the time. So I figured today's the day I tried it, like not having it being bought by production. The food's good. The coffee sucks. I've also got merch. Check out the link in the show notes. No new episode next week because it's Thanksgiving in the States. Also having two full-time jobs, even though I'm completely my own boss for one of them, has got me feeling the burnout real hard. So your girl needs a break. But the week after that, I'll be back with a special episode on the history of summer blockbusters. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Terrific if you're even good For anyone at all for sure